which comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. This is John the Baptist. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Austin. Good morning. Good to see you. If I haven't met you, my name's Matt. I'd love to, to meet you before you leave. Um, we are actually going to be spending the month of January and probably into February considering our purpose as a community of faith. Historically, this is something that we have done at the beginning of most years, although we haven't for the past couple. So I want to begin this year revisiting that conversation. But before we get into our purpose statement itself, I want to begin this week by sort of setting the stage, considering that one of our primary purposes, just as, as people of faith, as followers of Jesus, is finding our place in the grand narrative uh, of God, which we, we are going to get into our purpose statement in coming weeks. But I, I want to begin that process considering the idea of sacred time, seeing our time itself as an opportunity in which we can live into the story of God, seeing our days, our years, even fleeting moments as holy occasions to know and be known by our Creator. You know, the, the 1992 uh, Christian hip-hop trio, DC Talk, saying, time is ticking away. Anybody? I saw somebody mouthing the next line, tick, tick, ticking away. Anybody else? Tick-tock, tickety-tock? All right. It, it's true, though. Time is ticking away. We are one week into the year 2024, and mark my word, we will blink and it will be the end of July. Time is relentless in its progress, like the Energizer Bunny. It does just keep going and going. And not only does it keep moving along, but it does so with what seems to be increasing speed. Time not only flies when you're having fun, but it also seems to fly more and more as you age. I know this firsthand. This year I am turning 40 years old, and the older I know, the older I get, the quicker it seems to pass. What does that even mean? What even is time? I mean, really, time is rather arbitrary dare I say, meaningless upon a surface-level observation. Time has been defined in a variety of ways. One definition goes like this. It is the continued sequence of existence and events in an irreversible fashion. Or, I've, I've heard it described in this way, simply as the measurement of movement through space. We could think about it like that. A day is a full rotation of the Earth on its axis. 
One month is a full revolution of the moon around the earth. One year, a full revolution of the earth around the sun. I think I have that right. I know it's elementary level science, but if we think of it in that light, time does seem rather meaningless. It's just what is, devoid of any inherent significance. The progression of time is just a brute, inconsequential fact, a law of nature that has governed the universe for millions of years and nothing more. But could it be more? Is it possible for time to be redeemed? Is it possible for something as ordinary as the progression of time to become for us as people of faith a significant opportunity, a way to structure our lives, enabling us to live into God's story? That we might begin to see each moment of every day as something more than an arbitrary ticking of the talk, but an opportunity ticking of the clock, not the talk. I still have that tick-tock, tickety-tock in my brain swirling around somewhere. Oh, an opportunity to be opened to the reality of sacred time. It can be a real struggle, in my experience, to not allow the days of our lives to just bleed together into indistinguishable nothingness. So I want to begin today by considering why. Why do we tend to have a difficult time seeing every day, seeing every moment as a holy moment in which we might have our eyes opened to the reality of Christ's presence with us and his work in us? I think perhaps that tendency springs from simple distraction. It's like that thought we considered last week from Ronald Rollheiser, who said our society knows how to anticipate an event, but not how to sustain it. And I think that is due in large part to our distraction. We talked about this earlier in the fall, but we live in an age of distraction where there is always a new piece of information to consume and digest. Breaking news constantly, world-altering, historic events constantly burst into our lives unexpected with tsunami-like force. But even the most significant events are quickly pushed out of mind, forgotten sometimes within hours as the next big thing occurs, that there is just too much input for us not to be distracted. And because of that, this moment can seem pretty fleeting and even rather unimportant because of the grandeur, the importance of the next moment. I know something big is just around the corner. Andy Warhol once predicted, in the future, everybody will be world famous for 15 minutes. A wild prediction in light of today's viral TikTok video reality. Uh, but often, as we know, a swift rise in fame is matched only by the speed at which our minds move on to the next thing. World famous, but only for 15 minutes. We are a distracted people. We are also a, a busy people. 20th century Trappist monk Thomas Merton suggested the biggest disease in North America is busyness. We're distracted we're busy. Of course, the two often go hand in hand, but how can we see 
the beautiful significance of this moment in the midst of hurry, distraction, and busyness. We can't, really. That's why I think Dallas Willard offered the advice that we should take as our aim to live our lives entirely without hurry. He went on the peace and joy and strength which God intended for human life. The well-being and health of mind and body is inconsistent with living in a hurry. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Hurry makes it impossible, I think, to nurture the spiritual life. It makes it all but impossible to recognize the sacredness of this moment right now. Because I'm preoccupied with the next moment. I'm preoccupied with what must be done in a few minutes. Of course, I I don't think Willard is encouraging laziness or apathy. I, I don't think hurry itself is sinful. In fact, there are situations in which to not hurry would be irresponsible and dangerous. We can imagine a thousand scenarios in which that is the case. For instance, if my five-year-old is wandering into a busy street in the middle of heavy traffic, hurry is the only appropriate thing in that moment on my part and on hers. Or a first responder zipping across town, running red lights, rushing to an emergency. That is a situation where hurry is appropriate. But maybe... Just maybe, zipping across town, weaving in and out of traffic, I don't know, to make it to work two minutes early? Or to make sure I'm not sitting on the front row at the movie theater? Maybe hurry isn't necessary or even good in every situation. When everything is an emergency, of course, nothing is an emergency. And maybe that constant, frenetic pace is forming us in ways that are not healthy, preventing us from consistently finding our place in God's story of redemption. And perhaps a simple recognition of the sacredness of time would help us to resist that cultural pull. But how can we develop that awareness when we are so busy and distracted? My, my fear is that we take those good exceptions when hurry is necessary um, and we take that as an excuse to live hurried lives, to elevate every task that needs completion to urgent status. So I can't take a moment to slow down and recognize the, the holiness of this moment because I really need to send that email and I've got to do it now or I have to check my preferred news outlet to ensure I don't miss breaking news, especially if it's about college sports. I have important stuff. I have important things that need to be accomplished. My schedule simply won't allow it. At times I wonder if our schedules are so overloaded that there is no margin, there is not a single spare moment in which I can become consciously aware of the sacredness of that moment. Fortunately for us, our scriptures offer us an alternative. They offer to us 
a, a different model for understanding time, one that slows us down to see the holiness of the moment. A model in which our schedules are not something that rules us, but have instead, through intentionality, uh, we, we have allowed our schedules to become for us tools that place us in the grand story of redemption. They become for us opportunities to see and know God. Annie Dillard once said that a schedule defends from chaos and whim. It is a net for catching days. I love that. I love that image, especially in light of the clock ticking with relentless speed, a net for catching days. However, that is true only if we intentionally seek to eliminate chaos and whim from the process of our scheduling. Scheduling alone isn't sufficient because we can continue to fill our schedules on a whim. We can continue to knowingly place chaos into the structure of our days, chaos that prevents us from being aware of our place in God's story. Our call to worship today from Psalm 89 subtly hinted at the holy significance of this day. I want to take a moment to look at just a couple of snippets from various psalms where we see this is the case. But our call to worship from Psalm 89, in verse 15, we read, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day. As I think we'll find in just a moment, in the poetic imagination of the lyricists who wrote the Psalms, it seems that the significance of a single day cannot and should not be overlooked, principally because any opportunity to exult in the name of the Lord, as we read in Psalm 89, any opportunity for us to dwell with or commune with God is an opportunity for us to find our place in the story an opportunity to live into our purpose as God's creation. Take our attention to Psalm 118, a well-known declaration down in verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. A day that has been crafted by our God cannot be unimportant. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The poets who penned the Psalms seem to have this unshakable confidence that a day, a single day, however fleeting it may seem, is a significant spiritual opportunity, one that must be seized and embraced and entered with open hearts and eyes. Look at one more psalm. Perhaps nowhere is this more evident than Psalm 84. And I'm sorry if I'm going to give you flashbacks to youth group karaoke led by Matt Redman, but we're going there. The psalm opens like this. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. And then if you jump down to verse 10, for a day... In your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Are you singing the song in your head? Yeah, me too. The place of your presence is so rich 
and life-giving. I find purpose and meaning there. I yearn for that place. A single day spent there is more meaningful than a thousand anywhere else. That's how rich it is. Time is not meaningless. It is more than a brute fact. A day is not meaningless, but another moment to enter the story, another opportunity to redeem time, to be restored and renewed in the presence of our God. So as followers of Jesus, we want to, at least my encouragement is to to see time, to see the hours of our days, the days of our years, is the true gift from God they are. The Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar once wrote that in the world of redemption, nothing pertaining to the world of creation is disowned. In the world of redemption, nothing pertaining to the world of creation is disowned. Well, this is not his direct point of reference. I wonder if the truth we find in that statement might also apply to this process of redeeming time, allowing our hours and our days to carry the spiritual significance they always have since the beginning. Last week, John's gospel took us back to the first verse of our Bible. Today, I want to return to that chapter, Genesis 1, the creation story, because I think we find there hints at the very beginning of the sacredness of time. It is something to seize. We'll begin reading in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The opening words of our Bible. It opens with a poetic theologically oriented description of creation. And while there is so much in this chapter to consider, probably so much to disagree and argue about, one subtle nuance is that what seems like just a brute fact, a law of nature, a circumstantial reality that we just exist with, is actually, in the biblical imagination, a part of God's design. God creates light, and we have night and day. We have morning and evening. So we continue looking at this story, the the story of creation, and it is told in the framework of these passing days or these passing periods of time. God creates in these six periods. Then on the seventh, that creative activity ceases and God rests. God rests not as though he was exhausted from a tough day of manual labor in the middle of the heat of July. So he needs to sit in the shade for a while, drink some Gatorade to replenish his body with electrolytes. this, This day of rest is signifying the completion of creative activity. And now God seems to enter this 
season of resting and ruling with his creation. If you notice in chapter 2, the seventh day in the story has no end. So every description of creative activity to this point, days 1 through 6, concludes in the same way. There was evening, there was morning on the first day, on the second day, on the third day, so on and so forth, but not on the seventh day. God blesses the seventh day then, and we are told God makes it holy. A holy day built into this pattern of weeks for the people of God. And this day becomes holy, an opportunity for God's people to model their lives and even how they approach their work. They work and they work, but built into that rhythm of work throughout their lives is this rhythm of rest, a time to delight in their lives with God and allow everything else to flow out of that communion. So we see, even from the beginning, the spiritual significance of a single day is built into this story, and for God's people, it was recurring. Every week, we have this day that has been set apart and is a holy day for us. There are other hints in this story that point to the sacred nature of time. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, the middle of this creative process, Beginning in verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So again, verse 14, lights in the expanse that separate day and night, and those lights that create those days have a purpose in this Story. We are told they are for signs and for seasons, or, or moedim. They are for days and for years, but each of those days that are a part of the years, that are a part of seasons for God's people, are significant opportunities for the people of God to re-enter and retell the story that they are a part of. And by entering, it seems like a really simple suggestion, but by entering those rhythms of time and structuring their days around the story, they had an opportunity every season to allow their lives to be shaped by the story that they were retelling, the story they were a part of. Intentionally entering the story was a habit that would remind them that they are a part of a story, that their lives have meaning in the context of that story. And the story is bigger than the nation they were a part of. The story is bigger than the familial relations they had. But we see at the very beginning of God's story, this is put into the process. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project put it this way. 
He said another layer of Genesis is that the first, middle, and last days, which we've looked at a few moments ago, they're all designed to show God creating structures of time. He says, in the timing of the middle fourth day, God appoints the sun, moon, and stars to rule over day and night, and they are to mark the Moedim, the annual sacred feasts. Again, these feasts that would give shape to their understanding of time, placing them in that story. He goes on to on to argue that the whole sacred calendar of Israel, which we find later in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, it is all already a part of the story in the beginning of creation. This is sacred time. And it becomes for God's people. And in my view, it continues to be an important part of our spiritual development. Entering the story. Finding our place in God's story in a habitual way reminds us that we are a part of a bigger story. This is one reason on Sundays in our worship service we try to follow the church calendar. We want to understand something even as ordinary and commonplace as the passage of time through the lens of our life in Jesus Christ. We want to retell the story and throughout the year place ourselves in that story because that is one way we defend against apathy, we defend against overscheduling, we defend against busyness and distraction. Finding our place in that story. A story that supersedes the American story. A story that supersedes the familial stories we are a part of. In his little Advent book, The Anticipated Christ, Brian Zond wrote this. He said, in modernity, the speed of life becomes ever faster and more frenetic. And this contributes to a shallowness of soul that we experience as disenchantment. He suggests that the sacred calendar, on the other hand, comes from a slower and more contemplative time. And as a result, as we enter into that story through something like the church calendar, we begin to find our lives marked as a part of this story. So we want to mark even the passing of time in a thoughtful way centered around the person of Jesus that we might allow small moments to open us up to encounters with God and place us squarely in the story. I heard a pastor once put it this way. Until you see your day as sacred, and we might add your year, until you see your day as sacred, your schedule will rule you. I don't know about you, but that hits a bit too close to home. Until you see your day as sacred, your schedule will rule you. We must approach the hours of our days, the days of our years, intentionally. Building in the margin needed that enables us to cultivate an awareness of our place in God's story. How might we begin seeing our days as sacred? How might we begin or continue to avoid being ruled by our schedules? 
we have been invited to see our schedules as a tool that can habituate us to God's presence and our purpose, our place in God's story as we begin to see every day, every moment as a sacred opportunity to commune with God. I invite you to join me in that process. Jen and Ashley, if you want to come up as we begin to prepare for communion, we're going to respond, hopefully, what I'm trusting, um, respond to what God's Spirit has been speaking to our hearts. Um, my prayer is that as we have looked at our scriptures, considered the, the sacredness of time, that your hearts and minds have been stirred, been challenged um, in this regard. So I, I would invite you to stand. We are going to celebrate and respond around the table of our Lord. I'm going to say a prayer, and then I'll invite you forward. We will create lines each week, as we do, down these two center aisles. When you come to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. Again, if you are in need of prayer, um, I invite you to find somebody either up here or over on this side or at the back. Find somebody we would love, love to pray with you. Let me say a prayer, and then I'll invite you to the table. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your creation that we are a part of. We, we thank you for life, for our existence. We thank you that something even as ordinary as the ticking of the clock, the passage of time has been redeemed in you. We ask that you would continue to open our eyes to the holiness of each moment. So now I pray, creating God, we confess with the psalmist, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You make us glad with the weekly remembrance and celebration of the glorious resurrection of your Son, our Lord. Give us this day such blessing through our worship of you that the week to come may be spent in your favor, walking the path you lay before us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?